This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Thanks everyone for coming to this inaugural industry VR day. Um, my name is Natasha Gadd and I'm the um, public programs manager here at ACME. And I'm now going to hand over to our moderator, Emily Harridge, founding director of Visual Playground, to introduce our panel. So I'm joined here today by Piers Masseret from Jumpgate, from the Navy Blue, Emre Denise from the Opaque Media Group, and Sally Ann Calloway. So thank you all for coming today and um, for this tech panel. So, yeah, I'd like to talk to you all and learn a little bit more about your work and um, maybe we can start uh, with you, Sally, and you can tell me your experiences with virtual reality. Sure thing. Um, first of all, I'll just apologise for the state of my voice. It's been a very, very busy Melbourne International Games Week and I've been speaking my little jaw off. So I'll try and I'll try and speak up and keep it a little less creaky. Um, my name is Sally Calloway. I'm a... So, like a senior audio designer at Zero Latency VR. If you were in the earlier session, you would have met one of my employers, um, Scott Van Donkilo. He's the CTO of the company. He like wrote all the programming for for Zero Latencies. So, Zero Latency is this amazing, um, like free, like large scale free roaming VR experience where you pop on a backpack and you pop on your headset and some headphones, and we give you a plastic. Um, weapon and you just run around in this warehouse and you can shoot zombies but the zombies don't really exist they're in virtual reality so it's entirely safe your brains don't get eaten which is really nice (laughs) yeah come on (laughs) (laughs) um i have a video of what the like zero latency experience is like it's a short one so um that way you can kind of see what i'm sort of like raging on a bit about here when it's like a warehouse but there's zombies but there's not so we can play that video so that one's quite an intense experience where you have to fight like uh, your, yourself and up to five of your friends have to fight off all these zombies. We also do a number of other experiences, including nonviolent uh, VR experiences like puzzle games. We also do simulation work as well. So we're quite a diverse company, but we do focus on interactive media. I also have um, I, like a film project that I'm in pre-production for as well. So I'm quite interested in all different types of VR and I, my particular specialization is sound. Thanks. Um, so, Emre, we'll, let's hear from you about your experiences with Opaque Medium. Uh, sure. Um, I can't really follow that up. That's great. <laughs> like a trailer and stuff for your work. And this is the second time I'm doing this, so I'm going to keep it a little bit more brief um, for humility reasons. Um, I am a producer uh, and, and a game design lead at Opaque Media Group. Um, we originally started with um, empathic learning tools in, in virtual reality. Um, uh, which you can talk to Alzheimer's Australia about, who are downstairs um, in the foyer area. Uh, we're currently working on two games. One of them is Earthlight, which is the journey of uh, becoming an astronaut. Um, so going from your training to deployment on the International Space Station. And the second one being Genesis, which is a god game in virtual reality, both of which um, are currently playable downstairs in the, the VR play area. And they will be um, also available at PAX, which is great. And yeah, um, my background uh, in terms of um, my role as a developer, I started as a 2D artist and I was a 3D artist. Um, and then from that, I moved on to several roles, one of which was um, a game designer. I was also briefly the, the media and communications lead, um, helping create the media plan for Earthlight. Um, 
And currently, I'm a, produ- a producer, production producer. So lots of spreadsheets and stuff. No VR. <laughs> Important. And Piers, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Piers, um, head of production at Jumpgate Virtual Reality. We're a VR content producing studio based in Adelaide and Melbourne now. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, in the three years that we've been exploring VR, it's gone from quite simple sort of 2D uh, static productions to full interactive mm. um, game engines so, and everything in between. It's a very rapidly evolving space and we're exploring where it brings value to the world, knowing that it's quite a strange new uh, new tech, new medium. Um, and there's no revenue stream, no set way of distributing content or even producing it. So it's constantly evolving and uh, thoroughly enjoying the journey. Um, do have a bit of a showreel here of some live action content. So that's at sort of one end of the spectrum of what we do. If we could play that now. Yeah, so a brief example. Um, that's at the, the live action content production side and then the other end there's interactive and then um, the crossover all that um, in uh, training and storytelling and all sorts of applications. So it's a brief background. Thank you. So we've got a pretty diverse panel here. So. Um, just so the audience understands, maybe we can talk a little about little bit about the difference between real time um, and three hundred and sixty video. So, the, mm. working with the games engine and um, the difference when you the production process of um, using three hundred and sixty video. Absolutely. Should we start with three hundred and sixty video or the other way around? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um, <laughs> guess that's what what I've been focusing on for quite a long time, and that's. Um, that's where the early, I guess the early wins were for what we were doing. There was a logical progression from visual impact assessment in uh, infrastructure projects, which um, we, we found spherical panoramas to be a very useful tool in community engagement. And then as the tech grew, those static panoramas, we were able to make them move. And one thing led to another and we, we actually split off, spawned off a separate company because we were doing too much under under one banner. So, yeah, the... Um, Via video or 360 video is um, there's various ways to capture it, and again, there's no no industry standard, no set way of doing things. So multi-camera arrays are probably the most common. Um, such cameras, 360 cameras, are becoming more and more accessible to the public now. So it's falling into the hands of everybody, which is great. So I'm expecting to see a bit of a a content wave in the next few months. Um, when dealing with multi-cameras, you have to obviously stitch many streams of footage together into uh, panoramic video that's uh, ideally as seamless as possible. You might have noticed some in the clips before. Um, they are a sad fact of life when dealing with uh, the physics of separated cameras, but that's uh, all part of the challenge. Um, they can be quite linear experiences. Um, the videos don't fully, uh, I guess, take advantage of the degrees of freedom that this hardware is now allowing the viewer to, to experience. Um, early on, we're a bit more limited to more sort of head tracking and it um, rotational tracking and a little bit of sort of parallax shift. Now we've got full uh, room scale experiences like zero latency, yep. HTC Vive. Mm-hmm. You can now wander around and interact completely. So um, I guess to take full advantage of all that freedom, you need a digital scene which can render on the fly and allow the user to interact with. Um, we're exploring the integration of live action footage with that type of environment, but um, I think these two are more experienced in that realm and should probably talk about the uh the more it's like a spectrum isn't it yes because uh, you have um 
essentially roaming VR. Yeah. And our one is uh, predominantly seated experiences in VR. Yes, mm. but you can use the same software to develop those. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you don't even really need to like to use a game engine to make interactive VR experiences. Doesn't even mean that you have to publish it into like a, a rig, a ginormous rig like zero latency or even to make it room scale where you can walk around a bit. You can still have seated or standing experiences that are made in a game engine. Um, if you are particularly good at using that tool, then you can just you can even drop a video into there and have some interactivity yep. layered over the top. Or like um, this image up on the screen here, the Turning Forest was made in um, the Unity engine as well. So a game engine is a very complex piece of software that actually lets you like essentially simulate a whole world with like complex behaviors and anything else that you can program into it. They're a lot of fun because like you can pretty much do anything with a game engine. Well, at least that's what I think. Cause I, you can make so many different types of games. I, I've come from game development and I just love the flexibility of it and the power of, of those tools as well. So zero latency, we work with a piece of software called Unity Engine. And um, Emre, you work with um, Unreal Engine. So mm -hmm. they're, they're two different flavors of, of that particular software. I'm not very good at using the game engines because I'm just a sound person. I'm just like, oh, Emre's going to be pulling faces at me for saying the wrong thing. There's no such thing as just a sound person. <laughs> <laughs> I do a little bit of programming myself just mm. because I... I like um, I like the logic and the behaviors that you can actually impart on on the craft and the the sounds that I can put into into my experiences. So I have a lot of power and control, which gives me a little bit of an ego trip. But it's also um, they're huge creative tools that you can use to express your ideas um, in a way that the player can actually interact with, which is the beautiful thing about game engines. I think. Yeah, I mean, I th to. In because they both explain it in a really good way. So um, just to, to bring it back to the, like the simplest form of answering the question is going to be um, 360 video. You're looking, um, you're able to essentially look around an environment that you can't exactly interact with. Um, that may not be in the truest sense be three dimensional, whereas um, virtual reality or room scale virtual reality or roaming virtual reality or seated experiences for example allow you to interact with objects in a different number of ways um, and that can be um, you know ray casting like you look at something it activates or you're able to move a motion map controller that's mapped to your hand um, uh, your your avatar's hand and you can pick up objects and, and move them around so the level of interactivity, I think, and the fidelity of the dimensions that are in use are um, where we have those distinctions. And both of them are actually quite equally valid and rewarding experiences. And um, so, and what do you think is different now about AR and even VR technology compared to the past? You know, why, why is it now that it's suddenly become very popular and um, we can do so much more with it? I mean, I personally... What I've seen is that the hardware has become quite accessible to mm -hmm. the public. I think um, I, I, obviously like I wasn't around as a professional in the previous waves of VR. So when the um, the virtual boyfriend Nintendo came out, for example, <laughs> I've tried it. I don't, I don't really get it because <laughs> it's a little bit old school, but that's okay. Some people like old school things. Mm -hmm. um, these current technologies now, like uh, I have a Samsung gear like a samsung s7 in my phone as my phone in my bag and i can just pop that into a, a gear headset and and 
play some VR or watch some VR. And I absolutely love that I can, I have like a little VR device in my handbag. It's, it's amazing. I also have a 360 camera in my bag as well right now, a Theta S and the, the technology is just so accessible and that's meant that more people can try it and more people can develop for it. The tools are there as well. So the fact that we do have like game engines that can make, can allow game developers and other types of like software developers as well create interactive VR experiences. It's just like, like a honeymoon, this beautiful honeymoon period where everything, all the planets have aligned and it just, it's the, it's the perfect time now. Really? I yeah. think the tech is now ready. Sorry. No, you go. Um, in the seventies, it was science fiction. In the nineties, they tried really hard to make it work and push it on the market. I don't think the tech was ready back then, and nor was the market. Now we're in an age where people love tech. They embrace it every day. Um, it's a huge part of our lives. And the equipment is also at a level of quality that's now worth worth purchasing, worth the consumer actually investing in. Um, whereas 90s, poor screen resolution, big heavy devices, it was just impractical, mm. um, both technically and uh, price point was too high. So now we're seeing this beautiful blend of um, good market uptake, good tech, good prices, and the content is is following suit, and I think also driving it a lot as well. So. Yeah, I mean, the value proposition that we're making to the consumers uh, as a commodity <laughs> has increased. Um, like VR has existed basically since people were um, moving laptops upside down and taping, you know, cardboard funnels into their faces, and that's the Anasas VR prototype that they had on the International Space Station, by the way. Um, and they've been doing it since the 1960s. And VR has existed in multiple spaces way longer than it has um, even entered the consumer market. And I think that things like mobile computing, um, the accessibility of smartphones, uh, uh, the, the way that we can um, the crystal lenses and things like that, like display units, like the, these advances in technology allow us, and game engines too, by the way, and hardware, um, allow us to now look at the possibility of virtual reality or augmented reality being things that are accessible at a price point that isn't going to cost you $300,000, which was the, the price point of some of the earliest VR rigs for our training purposes. Um, and the funny thing is like the HTC Vive just trashes all of them just right out of the box. Hmm. Um, so there's been uh, I mean, many developments yeah, even over the last 12 months and the number of cameras that are now available compared to one year ago, it's, you know, there's there's the Omni, the Ozo, the Facebook camera, the Gear 360, that, that, there's there's so many. So it's a question for Pierce, I suppose. So how has your um, production changed and mm. evolved and, and your workflow? Yes, it's uh, evolved a lot um, and changed as new tools become, became available. There are still certain tools and techniques that haven't changed so much for me over the, the last three years but we're seeing now with uh, the case being built for for market um, in terms of viewing and capture people are interested in doing it themselves so the companies like Samsung, Nikon, most of the camera companies seem to have something in the works and are producing straight out of the box 360 solutions for the consumer. Um, we've seen that with all image capture you, know, you can go out right now and buy a, an amazing camera and shoot a good film if you're capable. So we, we've seen a shift from the early rigs, which were very much just hacked together concepts that you had to refine and learn um, over time to point and shoot options, which aren't necessarily a sort of a, a high-end capture method just yet, but the rate at which it's moving, um, I think it 
could be potentially. Um, for now, to get the kind of resolution and frame rate that, that we're after, we generally use multi-camera rigs, which then involves stitching together all these streams of video, like I mentioned before, and dealing with all the physical limitations of, of that style of workflow. Mm. Um, early on, action cameras were um, a great way to do it. They still are. They're very small and very powerful for what they are. Um, Different projects have very different challenges, and sometimes that's not appropriate. And sometimes using a DSLR or you know, cinema rig is isn't either. So it's really um, a case of tailoring the hardware to the challenges at hand. And there's not one set set solution for um, capturing any of this at the moment. It is changing very rapidly. There's, like I said, consumer options, but also high end options are starting to to appear, like Facebook's. Um, Camera design was released open source. It's prohibitively expensive for most people and very complicated, but you can go out with their design and build it, and that will deliver you a very high-end final result if you use it well. So moving very quickly and just got to try and keep up and use the right tools for the challenges at hand, I think, is the trick. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so we'll talk about audio. I mean, audio is a big part of any VR experience, and um, it can be it can be a very powerful tool. Uh, so in, in any kind of VR experience, whether it's uh, for all the panel members here, but Sally, would you like to talk about um, how you approach audio and, and the different types of audio? Because obviously there's there's binaural and phasonic, so there's many different ways of approaching audio. Yes, absolutely. That's one of my favourite topics to talk about <laughs> as a sound person. <laughs> So um, I've come from like, the game development world, as I as I said before, and in, in games we've sort of almost always been dealing with completely simulated 360-degree worlds where we're like if we were to recreate this this cinema, we'd, I'd, we'd go and we'd make a chair and we'd put a, a whole bunch of chairs there and we'd make a person and we'd put a whole bunch of people here and a few people up here and all these props everywhere. And then I would go through and say, okay, so the people will make sounds, uh, you might breathe, uh, you might clap at a certain point in time as well. So I'd go through and, and define the behaviours and then actually create, come up with a sound design based on, on what's going to happen in that particular scene throughout the story of the game. Um, from there, if I was to do that in VR, it's actually a matter of just deploying it to a, to a VR headset. I know that there's a whole lot of other tech stuff that happens as well. <laughs> um, but for me, I also need to make sure that when when we have a VR experience, the player can pretty much look wherever wherever they like. They can they can if if they were put sitting from my perspective, you'd hope that they'd be looking at the at the crowd most of the time, but they might also be going, Ooh, ooh, what's that up there? And just looking at the screen and not really paying attention to whatever story might be happening through the crowd, if there was something exciting happening in the crowd. So it then becomes my job to really direct the attention of the of the player or, or of the person that's actually watching that VR experience, and that can be really challenging sometimes, and that can be really fun really fun sometimes, depending on what what content you're creating. So, when I approach a game, I'm actually thinking about uh, whether the thing that the player needs to pay attention to is it might be dangerous like a zombie, that's really important for the player to actually look at that thing because they might sneak up behind them and eat their brains and then the player would get really angry and sad that their brains got eaten and they died. So it's totally up to up to the experience what, what direction we really need to guide the player to look in and it, it becomes quite esoteric and existential now and I really adore that because it means I can put a lot of thought into my design and and how I really structure the experience 
Um, as I said before, um, there's also, I, I'm in pre, pre-production for a VR film and it, it's very similar except the player doesn't have, uh, may not have as many points of interaction. You actually really need to work quite hard to make sure that they're following that story that you're really like putting quite a lot of effort into, into creating and telling throughout the scene. And that's the, that's the, the best challenge ever, I think, because it means that what I'm doing suddenly becomes very, very important and the tech plays into it quite, quite a lot as well. So there's, um, there's really, really cool, um, actual like sound technology that I'm able to use now. So now that computers are really powerful and uh, that there's been like an explosion of software technology that's come out with to service VR, I can use things like binaural processing, as you said, that word before. And we can also use uh, like capture methods as well. So you can capture sound in, with binaural microphones or with ambisonic microphones. And, oh, gosh, I could rant about these different technologies all day. <laughs> but um, basically binaural, that, that word refers to the fact that we have two ears and we, and we use those two ears to listen to what's happening around us. You can capture things with, two, with sound with two microphones or you can actually take an entire scene and process that in a way that will deliver to a left and right um like speakers if you're using speakers or headphones and the all of that technology just happens like sort of inside the box in inside the computer and all of that hard work and maths is taken care of for me now it's all very accessible and it's actually like hugely powerful as a creative tool as it means that I actually have access to so much more creative space. I have like full 360 degree sound. I can position sounds very, very specifically. I can give them, give those scenes depth that might not have been accessible before through standard stereo reproductions. It's a really exciting time. I actually really dig it. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll just, there's something I really wanted to ask everyone their, their thoughts on. So um, Facebook is starting to experiment with avatars and to depict the self and mm. just wondered what everyone's thoughts were on embodiment and, um, um, yeah. Tough one, isn't it, embodiment? <laughs> <laughs> so embodiment in, in virtual reality or a virtual environment is always going to be a tough question, especially when you have unparalleled um, ability to interact with that environment. So if you have an avatar and you have this idea of agency and um, existing within this game world and you have uh, you and the users around you, especially in a social setting like Facebook, um, giving you all these abilities to interact with each other, um, my thoughts on that is that we're going to have very, very interesting ethical questions yep. and very, very interesting um, incidents that will occur where, you know, we have to be very careful about the idea that we've opened a bit of a door here in terms of virtual reality that um, we've immersed the user into an environment that's quite believable and that means that that believable environment can inflict trauma back onto the user. So yeah, something like Facebook avatar or any, any, any social environment where virtual reality is a platform it's based on um, is going to have a number of very serious things that we have to consider proactively rather than reactively, I yeah. think. Yeah. It's um, as much as it, it's something that we need to think about very, very deeply, as, particularly as developers at the moment with social VR experiences like old space VR um, or even like multiplayer games that have the ability for people to interact with each other. It's also a hugely powerful ethical tool as well. So mm -hmm. it can help immerse people in different experiences as well. And because you 
um, doing the full like um, sight and sound like sensory re- replacement, people do become embodied and, and quite invested in the experience that they're having. So these beautiful experiences where you're able to see what it's like in a refugee camp or um, so on and so forth. They really help you feel a lot of empathy for what's happening around you and that can help people understand different perspectives and I think that's the most beautiful thing ever when it's used very, very well. So how do you find that with zero latency um, because you've got you've got the characters so you yeah. look down and you see your hand then it, sometimes it's not quite there. Like it's, yeah, like, yeah, there's still like, we're still working on it <laughs> and um, it is a very complex system so... Um, so you can see all the other characters. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, um, you're, you're given a, a person. To yeah, you're given an, a whole avatar and um, that avatar is different based on what like experience you're in as well. So, for example, that zombie experience that we were looking at, um, you're all military characters. So I look down and I feel really tough, <laughs> which is perfect. Oh, sorry, it's perfect for that particular um experience because we want people to feel powerful when we go when they go into that game like they can like defeat all the zombies and not die that's perfect um but in the same way it is also a little bit scary because like if the zombies run out to you they want to eat your brains yeah yeah so i mean obviously there's always a choice whether to to have a a body there or not yeah yeah and and so does mm. anyone else have any feelings about showing the physicality of a person depends uh on the aesthetic you're going for and the feeling you want to impart on the viewer as well. Mm. Um, I do personally find it, particularly with um, live-action content, a bit disconnecting when you look down and you're just floating. There's no yeah. legs. Yeah, I've seen people freak out because their hands weren't there. Um, saw a girl rip it off her face because her hands were missing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, that is a little bit of a disconnect. Um, we try and overcome that in various ways by... You know, you can mount a rig above a person, so you look down and you see yourself, um, and you can weave that character into the stories. Um, in a rendered environment, you have a lot more flexibility to to try and create that, I guess, mm. to ground the viewer to their character. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But sometimes it's not necessary. If it's purely experiential, for example, like, I don't know, a virtual visit to the Eiffel Tower, you're not really going to spend time looking down at your feet when you've got the Eiffel Tower there. So sometimes it's not really worth worrying about too much it really depends on the content and um what you're going for you touched on a really interesting example though because um what we found with height is that um when you get afraid of height you do look down at your feet to ground yourself back into um yeah. it's a self-reassurance technique because yeah, yeah. i was going to say in a rendered environment what happens is that um the absence of a body or the absence of your digital av- avatar not mapped correctly to your physical body and your physical interactions actually induces simulation sickness so it's a really good way to like make someone throw up in virtual reality and they'll remember your game or your experience. Trust me on that. Um, so the idea is that uh, you can choose to do these things, but you have to be very aware of why we choose to, to either have a body or not to have a body or the physical representation of, of an avatar or not to do that um, and be aware of the experiences that you're crafting because with virtual reality comes a territory that um, there's a lot of psychology associated with it. So... Um, well, one of the most jarring things I've ever found, for example, was that um, my body, there was some sort of a scaling error on the asset. So my body was a lot larger than than what I felt like. And it felt like I was controlling a giant robot from Pacific Rim <laughs> in an astronaut suit. Um, and that was a surreal experience. Like I would describe it as being something that is quite like it's an experiment, obviously, but it, it was very jarring. Um, 
So you just have to be really careful, I guess, about how you use physicality um, and representation of physicality in, in, in digital environments. That can be like a, a power as well. Yeah, it can be. If you, if you wanted people to feel like they were giant, then that would be... That's the way to go. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To Absolutely. scale up the model. <laughs> I think it should all be narrative driven. Yeah, I mean... Start you know, with your narrative yeah. and, and work out what, what best, the best tool to, to tell mm. that story. Um, in the future, I mean, there will probably be technology like Magic Leap and other technologies that will be able to replicate the environment that, that you're in. I mean, and, and Emray, you know, you're looking at Project Tango and, yes. and the HoloLens. So, so where do you see the, the, the future going with, with those technologies? I love that um, we use the Magic Leap reference because I was just making fun of James Ebert, who's the game designer at Magic Leap, that they can never talk about their work ever. It's like the super secret um, augmented reality stuff that they're working on. The HoloLens, however, is an interesting stuff. And Tango as well. The idea that, so the difference, let's you know quickly cover what the difference between AR and VR is. In virtual reality, you're placing um, essentially a user into a digital or artificial environment. Whereas in augmented reality, in the virtuality spectrum, you're essentially imposing a digital environment onto an existing environment for a user. So that could be like placing a cube uh, through a viewport in a, in a lens or a mobile phone or a headset unit, placing a digital cube inside of a physical environment. Whereas in VR, you put on the headset and you you go to a completely different environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's here's Emma and Piers and me and Emily and there's R two D two and we yeah. totally believe that because or we can Pikachu. see. It. Yeah, Pikachu would be fun yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> always AR always goes back to Pokemon Go. Let's face it. Um, so the idea is, I guess. Um, it's an exciting territory for games, but it's one that we actually see through the lens of um, a five-year plan. Um, the technology is emerging at best. Um, po- people always use a Pokemon Go reference, and it's important to unpack that, right? Like Pokemon Go was created by the team that gave you Google Street Maps. Um, it's also was created in more of a freakish accident because it was originally made as an Easter egg for like a Halloween update. And then... Uh, Mm-hmm. So um, game like games and interactive content in AR is something that we're, we're, we're tracking very closely, but the technology, I think, is, um, is emerging at best, um, whereas we are, VR has already hit consumer, consumer markets. Okay, well, I, I think we are going to take some questions now, so mm-hmm. we're going to open to the audience. So if anyone would like to ask a question, this mic's coming up. <clears throat> uh, this is mostly to Sally for just about sound. Um, We've been doing a lot of audio. Um, my background's as a composer, so I obviously naturally work in a door. Um, I've never played with Unity at this stage. Do you think the future of audio in uh, VR and 360 video is going to be uh, Unity or Unreal based, or do you think there is any future in door based ambisonic sound? It's an interesting question. Um uh, for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what a door is, it's um, that's a DAW, so a digital audio workstation. It's just like a computer-based tape deck with a lots of effects that are really fun for composers and sound designers to work with. Um, there's a few different flavors of where sound is right now in terms of VR and maybe even more flavors of where it's going. And I was doing this because I really believe that um, a lot of content will go, uh, VR content will go interactive in the future, which means that we'll be seeing like more uptake and definitely like more usability for um, engines like Unreal and Unity for other people that aren't necessarily from game development to be able to use them and work with them. 
Um, if you're working in a door, you can use uh, like um, plugins to have to do your com- composition or sound design um, in that environment for linear media, so linear VR. Uh, you can also, if you needed to implement into your your game engine, you can still do that, but you split up all the different assets into into the component parts, and you have your music, and you might implement that in a particular way. That's like a whole other discussion. <laughs> Implementation is one of my favorite things. I'm a huge nerd. Um, in terms of like whether you need to use a game engine or like for VR, for audio, you don't particularly need to. It's sort of where you're deploying out to and what type of experience that you're making. It is a really, like if you want to get into interactive VR, so games or simulations, those sorts of things, apps, um, it is a really good thing just to jump on those particular websites and, and have a look at the videos and learning materials there, sort of wrap your head around how nonlinear sound works. There's also other tools called uh, middleware because it's um, the, a piece of software that sits between the game engine and your door and it gives you like a whole bunch of really cool sound tools to be able to make interactive sound and music but in a in a better UI for you. So there's like... Yeah, again, it's like several hours worth of conversation we could have there, but I hope that sort of helps a bit. <laughs> uh, hi, this is a question to really anyone in the panel who wants to answer. Um, with the you know emergence of VR as a way to create a, um, an extremely immersive experience, are you concerned with how this is going to have to change um, the way we make and market games, especially to children, in kind of a, a moral way? Yes, absolutely. Um, not just children, anyone, I think. Yeah. Um, I would only have a caveat of what the idea of moral is. I think that's a discussion that should be unpacked. Like that's a panel talk in itself um, because, you know, we have a classification system and it, it's one that has been um, integrated. The history of it has been has been quite uh, contentious and this idea of morality in marketing from games to to audiences um yeah like virtual reality for example i think will require some level of classification ethical development as well um, but also informing the the audience and consumers so that they make moral choices um, as opposed to developers having the onus of um, having to police um, the commodity going to market as much as we've had to in the past with the lacking of the the uh, our classification and things like that I think it's really important that people know what they're getting when they mm. step into a VR experience. Like for me, I, I like to use myself as an example because like I can't watch horror anything. It's surprising that I can play that game sometimes because I just stand there with my eyes closed just shooting the gun in a circle because I get so scared. But um, I, I'm really interested in VR, so I like to try different things, but I really need to know what might happen. So if there's going to be lots of jump scares, that experience will probably traumatise me. So it's very important for uh, um, content creators to explain what might happen in their experience in a way that people can make really informed decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility that we have now. Definitely. And due to the nature of VR, the virtual reality in its own name describes an experience that is perhaps a bit more realistic and immersive than traditional media that we're used to and saturated by Um so if, if it has the power to make someone feel like they're somewhere else experiencing something different, the things they do experience could potentially have more profound impact on them. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Mentally, physically, you know. We're seeing a, a saturation to media, um, watch the news, horrific things every night, and we just flip the channel, doesn't mean anything. 
the same content in VR will be very confronting um, for a certain period until we're saturated by that too. And if that's the closest thing we've got to real reality, then uh, yeah, I'm a little bit wary of some of those impacts. So I think there's a great responsibility to do good with this tech. Yeah, we should give travel warnings as much as classifications, I think. You know, you're about to go to this type of experience, so be careful. Um, <laughs> that would be an ethical way, I think, of delivering <clears throat> that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just wondered, is there any kind of VR matrix of do's and don'ts that's been established <laughs> that you can apply across a range of age groups, you know, from young kids through to adults and what mm -hmm. have you, that says, you know, what you really should or shouldn't be applying in, in both the real the reality of the game and the mm -hmm. way it's rendered and what have you? Uh, to avoid simulation sickness, yes, absolutely. There is um, extensive documentation available right now uh, that have come out of um, Oculus that are available in um, Gamma Sutra, for example, that has um, covered um, the idea of simulation sickness really well. However, we, we are lacking um, in a wide range of player experience experience um, do's and don'ts at the moment and we've seen very recently for example that um, the infantile nature of this technology is actually really well represented in how little we know about how to protect players as well yeah, yeah i was thinking sorry also along the psychological <coughs> path of mm -hmm. reality for younger kids that get immersed in this and they can't so they sort of lose the ability of differentiation between mm. the real world and the non that fear has exist, um, existed in, in digital media since cinema, basically. So I think that, um, yeah, we'll have to navigate that space when, it's a, when it comes up. But it's one that it's a criticism that, that has existed since, uh, since we've had moving images, basically. Well, we're going to wrap it up. So thank you to all our panellists today. You. you have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.